0: Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb, and this podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. My guest today is Reverend Jennifer Butler. Reverend Butler is committed to amplifying the connection between faith and social justice. She has a heart as a community organizer and is also an ordained minister. She is the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life which works to change the narrative about the role of faith in politics. She's the former chair of the White House Council on Faith and Neighborhood Partnerships and has served as an international human rights advocate. She has written for Pathios, Sojourners, The Hill, and Religious News Service, And she's also the author of the book, Born Again, The Christian Right Globalized, and her newer book, uh, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture is a handbook for resisting tyranny. In this interview, uh, Reverend Butler is going to help us understand how the Bible is sometimes abused to promote tyranny, and how instead of giving into the temptation of throwing away the Bible, we actually want to read the scriptures fresh and apply them with wisdom and grace and understanding. not to promote tyranny but actually to resist it and so without further ado here is my interview with reverend jennifer butler jennifer many of us are growing in our familiarity with christian nationalism in america mm-hmm. uh, for some of us this is kind of a, a thing we've just learned is this a new phenomenon and is it only unique to america
1: Well, yeah, no, it's not new. And it's not just in America. Unfortunately, it's all over the globe. It's not new because when we think about it, Christianity was a religion of resistance to the empire, to the Roman Empire of the day. And Jesus was crucified, right, by the political authorities of his day. And then it became the religion of an empire, of the actual Roman Empire with Constantine. And then... You know, throughout Europe, you had the Crusades, you had the uh, colonization of America that was done in the name of Christianity. And so that was a version of Christian nationalism. When Christianity becomes the religion of empire or the religion of the state and is used to oppress other people, in the US, it was used to justify the genocide of Native Americans, it was used to justify slavery. How horrific, right? That's our Bible our sacred texts being used in this way. And in fact, one cool story related to that is that African slaves actually read the book of Exodus and rebelled against slavery in the, I think it was the 17th century on Barbados. And so they had to create a slave Bible. They had to cut out the book of Exodus so that the slaves would not get the true scripture, which would cause them to live out God's promise for humanity to try to live free. Uh, and you can see that today in the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And Christian nationalism is, has gone global in recent times. It has accelerated in some new ways. Today, in fact, Vladimir Putin is has been said to be the head of the global Christian right. Russian oligarchs are actually funding the Christian right and its efforts to go global and to export some of its fear tactics to other countries and regions of the world to polarize their societies and to concentrate power in the hands of autocrats.
0: So we see it, you mentioned Russia and their invasion of Ukraine. Some of the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox clergy are like advocating for the war and sanctifying the soldiers and their actions. We've seen that in other places. Uh, is there more subtle versions of Christian nationalism globally that maybe we could be aware of?
1: Yeah, there is. So in a number of countries in Africa, for example, Christian right groups have held conferences and then helped to enact legislation that discriminates against LGBTQ people. Not only discriminates, but calls for the death penalty for people who are gay or lesbian or trans. and. That is also a a strategy to polarize the society. So it's horrific because it could cost somebody their life and it's violent, but it's also being used to channel power and to create fear among the populace so that they politically vote for certain candidates who then turn around and use their power in other ways to uh, harm others. And so that's happening in Latin America, it's happening in Eastern Europe, and it's happening in Africa. To give an example, I was just speaking at a global conference of religious leaders, and I talked about this dynamic, and then afterward backstage, a leader came up to me dressed in sort of like orthodox-looking robes. Turns out he was actually a Baptist in the country of Georgia. I have to specify that because I now live in the state of Georgia, and everybody gets confused (laughs) when I tell the story. But he's from the country of Georgia. He said, you know, everything you said about Russian use of Christianity to dominate others is true. And in my country, I'm seeing them weaponize issues around sexuality and people's fears around that to bring disinformation into our country, because we're next on their list to invade. And that is how they galvanize the populace in support of Russia, rather than in support of human rights and democracy. And so he and I began to talk and strategize together. He's part of the Baptist World Alliance, and he's being supported by them in his effort to provide safe haven for LGBTQ people.
0: So we see it in modern usage. What about historically? Is this a new phenomenon, or have we seen this evolve over time?
1: In terms of the global Christian right? Yeah,
0: global Christian nationalism.
1: So so first you have Constantine, who makes Christianity the state religion and begins to use Christianity to justify his power. Then throughout the Middle Ages, you have the Crusades, you know, and so crosses are put on shields and, you know, the the invading uh, Europeans, you know, invade the Holy Land and, and that part of the world. You then have, you know, in the subsequent centuries, all, and all throughout a lot of pogroms against Jews. So Jews are always consistently demonized and used to sort of spread fear and factionalism. And so in the 19th century, a lot of that comes to the head actually in Russia, once again, playing a central role in pogroms against the Jews to shore up the czar's authority and power against some who are rebelling against him. They become the scapegoat. He writes, a number of uh, there are a lot of documents created at that time that are very anti-Semitic. Those then get brought over to the United States, and Henry Ford, the industrial industrialist, in the United States, begins to publish some of those. And one of those is called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and that becomes one of the main tracks of what today is uh, white supremacy in America. A lot of that then gets exported back to Germany and becomes the basis for what Hitler does in Nazi Germany. So that right there kind of shows you how these ideas have always traveled and morphed throughout history and throughout geographical location becoming more and more weaponized at certain points in our history Uh, unfortunately, and kind of snowballing. And we see that coming to a head more and more today.
0: So I think for many of us, we're aware of Nazi Germany and persecution of the Jewish people, but maybe we're not so aware of how scripture has been used to justify those things. You you mentioned uh, that there's such a thing in America as the slave Bible with texts like the Exodus removed and others that might promote uh, liberation for the captive. How is scripture used to promote the supremacy of a certain group of people or a Christian nationalistic idea? How do you hear that used today?
1: Yeah, you know, what's funny to me, because I love scripture so much, is whenever I hear it, it um, it doesn't make any sense, right? Like it's it's stuff that gets totally taken out of context. And you're like, how do they get that from that text? One example is that Christian nationalists kept saying that Trump was a modern day Cyrus, you know, so he, that was in the Bible, this, the king of Persia that, you know, basically was sort of perceived to do God's bidding. And though he was a heathen and, you know, not of the faith, God was able to use this imperial enemy to actually do some good, right? And so Trump, maybe not sounding so Christian and not being, you know, the upright moral citizen that Christians would want, but still doing God's bidding, even though He's doing all these horrific things, like not condemning the violence in Charlottesville of white supremacists marching down the street right away. So that's that's one thing, and of course, um, you know, where do they they get that? That that's just like you know a a pretty minor you know piece of scripture and story that they use to say, "Hey, God can use anybody." Um, At the same time, you know, there are all these biblical texts like King David, uh, the story of King David and how much damage he did to his country because of his lack of moral values with Bathsheba and some of the things he did, what happened to Saul when Saul as a king sort of went awry and went off the rails. So there's a condemnation in the Bible of leaders that don't live by God's ethic of love and human dignity. So the King Cyrus story doesn't really you know make a lot of sense, but is used. <laughs> what I often find is the pattern is more you know taking things out of context and and cutting out the most important pieces of the Bible and not sort of looking in the at them clearly so that you know we we can kind of understand the overarching themes of where Scripture is taking us as humanity. And so it's, it's a lot of proof texting, and there are a lot of holes in the arguments that are made.
0: So you use the phrase there, proof texting. What is that and how do we know when, when to spot it?
1: Oh, gosh, that is a really good question. Well, it's when they take a piece of a story and don't explain the whole context in which it was given. Another, an example of that, for example, um, is the creation story in Genesis, in which God creates and calls everything good. What's so interesting to me in that story is we tend to use it in a way that it wasn't intended. We use it to try to say, oh, God created the world in seven days. We try to use it as science, when really that story is a moral indictment of what was happening in that time. It's a moral indictment of people who believe that human beings were created to be slaves the Near Eastern creation myths really thought that human beings were created to be the slaves of gods. And that worldview, of course, justified a king enslaving people. So what was so unique about the scripture, the the creation story, is that God created, called it good, created human beings in God's own image. And that meant that we were to build a society in which there were no tyrants and there were actually no kings. In fact, looking forward in Scripture, when um, the people of Israel come to the prophet Samuel, they say, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. You know, Samuel says, are you sure? Here's what a king is going to do. A king is going to exploit your people. It's going to send your sons to war. And the people keep clamoring for a king. And they end up with Saul, and that goes down downhill pretty quickly. They end up with David. That creates some problems. They end up with Solomon, and he uses slave labor to build the temple. And then after that, there's a civil war. And so if we understand that full context of the Bible, that whole arc, and we look at those stories, then we know that if somebody pulls a story about Cyrus and uses it to justify a tyrant, somebody who's exploiting and harming other people and saying terrible things about people based on race and um, doing awful things, saying awful things about women, then we know that that story doesn't add up. That's just pulled out of its context. And so we need to go back to scripture and say, okay, what is the story of King Cyrus? What what truly is that? And does that make sense that God would do such a thing when I look at the whole arc of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation?
0: So one of the ways we might be able to spot proof texting is if there's just like a sentence or two ripped out of context and slapped onto my argument. That's right. That's right. So maybe if someone says, you know, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, and so we need to have more guns. <laughs> which I've heard
1: before. You've heard that. Oh you know, my!
0: You can't. You can't love your neighbor, Jennifer. You can't love your neighbor and help protect them if you are not empowered to do so through the ownership of firearms. Of
1: course. huh. Gotcha. Okay.
0: So, it makes perfect sense, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I can sit here and say, okay, well, that's illogical, right? But obviously, people come to that conclusion, and I think a lot of it's based in fear, you know, and Scripture has a lot to say about casting out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. The angels appear and say, fear not. Fear not is one of the most often phrase- used phrases in Scripture, and it you know it just reminds me of how when we're afraid and people are pulling at our fears it's easy for logic to go out the window you know and so i think it is important like to protect ourselves maybe against that kind of disinformation and proof texting to really spend time in prayer and 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 working at coming to terms with fear and knowing you know that god is walking with us so that we're looking at things in a more calm way you know yeah it's tough because you know in this environment that we're in there's a lot of misinformation circulating and you know i think people are really wrestling with who to trust and what to trust and i think only by getting very practiced at centering ourselves in the midst of this chaos centering ourselves in in prayer and having some loving relationships around us to support us, only then can we really resist some of the, the, the twisting of you know, our, our beliefs and our sacred texts that are around us. It's really quite abusive because it, it, it rattles the brain. You know, Even if we don't fall for some of these arguments, it, it's, it's quite rattling to realize that there are very few shared truths at this moment in our culture and i think that that in in and of itself is scary for folks
0: so if we're not called to proof text the bible if that's abusive <laughs> or a misuse of it should we throw the bible out altogether in public yeah. discourse thinking about policy or is there maybe another way a healthier way for us to view public use of scripture and even uh, going to scripture as it shapes our views of how we live our common life together
1: yeah, we should definitely not throw scripture out. I have found actually that in these times, even as I see people proof texting and, and kind of misusing my faith, it is scripture that's really grounded me and kept me oriented. So I found as I was doing some advocacy around child separation at the border, which really upset me as a parent and you know, as a as a as a pastor myself. I found verses of scripture sort of echoing in my mind. I would literally be at the border, you know, saying a prayer with, you know, some some pastors or helping in a humanitarian respite center and I would find these verses going through my mind and I would go back and and research them and I realized that God was trying to tell me things to help orient me. So the way I view scripture is that it is truly living word, that when we read these stories, we're reading stories of people who wrestled with oppression and violence and tyranny. And so when we put ourselves in their stories, God can speak to us today as we read those stories prayerfully. So as I thought about the creation story, you know, God created us all in God's image Here I'm standing in front of a respite center at the border at the height of the child separation crisis, and I'm waiting to volunteer at the center, and I watch some of the long-term volunteers bring in migrants from over near the bus depot where they get dropped off after being held in a cold detention cell for weeks, and many of them are sick and really need some support. And so they're coming over, there's about 100 of them. There's a child wilted over on his dad's shoulders and you know looks like he's about to fall off. And I'm watching that, that boy because he looks just like my son would look. And as they come up, the, the long-term volunteers start applauding them. That boy suddenly lifts his head, perks up and smiles ear to ear like a plant that's finally been watered. And then I turn and I look at the door and I realize the motto of that respite center that Sister Norma runs there in Texas is restoring human dignity. And I realize the creation story tells us we're created in God's image. What we're to do as Christians is to restore human dignity. And that is a spiritual practice. What can we do in the face of so much violence and so much oppression We can do little things to restore human dignity every single day. And that's what Sister Norma was doing. She was doing it in a very concrete way. And at times she was using her voice to speak out and say, here's how we should live as a community. Another time like that, I found myself repeating the phrase, remember, remember, remember you were once slaves. I went back and I looked carefully at that passage and I realized that what That passage is, it's the first, it's the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt and I freed you. That is the foundation of the entire law in the Hebrew scripture. And what it means is all law should be grounded in remembering oppression and not repeating it. To have historical empathy with those who have been oppressed, to be sure that our laws and the ways that we live together harm no group of people. And so that taught me a lot. It taught me that remembering is a spiritual practice. And so ever since 2016, I've been going back and relearning history. And I I tell you, I am one of those nerds who loved history. I know a lot of people hate history. So I thought I had studied it fairly carefully. And I realized I had no idea about a lot of stuff that happened, especially in my own community. I grew up in Georgia. I didn't realize that the private high school that I went to was actually a white Christian Segregation Academy. So I had to go and read the actual history of that to understand who I was, how I grew up, what the contours of my state were, and what I'm called to do and to be as a Christian, to to change all of that. How can our history be kept from us? And then today there are people around the country trying to censor libraries and censor the teaching of history in schools. The reason they want to do that is they want to control mindsets. And what, what Scripture tells us is The most important thing for us to do is to remember the history of those oppressed, to really look at history from their perspective, to read history with them, and then God will guide our footsteps, then God will guide our path, guide us on the path to liberation and to human flourishing.
0: That's beautiful. So maybe just as we're thinking about how to apply this, one check for us as we're reading scripture, even listening to scripture being used by politicians or celebrities or leaders of any sort is, is this use of scripture calling me to take up a cross or to take up a sword? Woo! And what I'm hearing you saying is that if it's calling you to take up a sword, uh, that there's probably a, a, a pause there that needs to happen and a going back to the text to say, are we, are we really... Believing that this scripture, this, this scripture that's designed to point us to Jesus and to a Jesus-centered wisdom and faith is calling us to do something that Jesus, like, didn't do. In fact, Jesus consistently told people to put their swords away.
1: That's right.
0: And so using scripture to justify putting kids in cages is abusive and harmful and wrong. The answer is not, I'm hearing you say, you, you don't think the answer is throw the scripture away, but rather revisit the scripture with fresh eyes and a humble heart to say, what is the scripture shaping my posture towards this scenario of kids in cages? And what would Jesus do is the old way to say, at least have the bracelets in the 90s. What That's right. WWJ I still no? like that. You yeah. know, we can
1: joke about it, but like, really, would you picture Jesus putting kids in cages? All right, so let's go back to the text and and read it prayerfully and and ask God, what is this text telling me to do, you know, in this place and time? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And and read it in community with others, especially read it in community with people who've been affected by some of these issues and we will learn something new. Yes, I love that.
0: Well, and I know that you've not only had experiences advocating for uh, many justice issues, you've also had some experiences uh, with some Christian nationalist institutions and organizations and events. As you, Would you just tell us about those experiences, and especially pastorally, as you watched the effect that these events had on people? yeah, so tell us about maybe the event or events, and then just what you observed as a pastor, what 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 was it doing to people?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I went to check out the Reawaken America Tour last year, almost exactly a year ago. It was up in Batavia, New York, which is just outside Rochester. And I went because some some clergy there were very alarmed that it was coming to their community and they wanted to hold a press conference and do some educational series. So I joined them, but I took some time to go over to the Reawaken America tour and to check it out for myself to understand what was happening inside. And to tell you the truth, I was a little nervous to go over there because as the listeners may have heard, it's, it's headlined by the g- disgraced General Michael Flynn. So he's kind of one of the key speakers behind it. And I had read some of the rhetoric coming out of it and it was pretty violent rhetoric, you know? And so as a woman going into those kind of forums, sometimes I get a little nervous, quite frankly. And sure enough, you know, luckily I was with a colleague and we parked the car, walked up the driveway. It was being held at a big Pentecostal church out in this sort of rural area. And so it was like a big revival campground in a sense. All along that driveway as we came up, were signs saying no guns, no knives, and they were newly placed signs. So that right there told me something. Um, and then there was a, a huge tour bus painted, you know, with a big logo. It was the bus of somebody called the Patriot Street Fighter. And he's like got nunchucks in his hand. He's got like a big mask on. He looks like a sort of if you've ever seen the Mexican wrestlers that wear the costumes and the mask. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like, okay, great. And here I am traipsing into this forum, right? No guns, no knives, the street fighter sign. Uh, There's security. They're making sure that nobody does indeed walk in with weapons. And then inside it's like a revival going on. And what I came to understand is it's a very Pentecostal charismatic um uh atmosphere, although let me be clear, it is not Pentecostalism and is not charismatic. The leaders of the Pentecostal denominations have come out and said this is heretical, you know, it's not it's not good. And <laughs> so you can read their own remarks, and they I think they very beautifully touched on some of the important themes. So it's kind of an adulteration or a warping of Pentecostal and charismatic beliefs. And there are a lot of Pentecostals challenging what is being said in those forums. And then when I listened to some of the speeches, what was most disturbing is they're literally demonizing their opponents. They're not just saying, oh, you know, we dislike this person. They're literally saying that Joe Biden is the devil, is Satan himself, and that there is a pending war. And it's not just a spiritual war sometimes it's spoken of on spiritual times terms but it's pretty concrete a war is coming, a storm is coming. And so you can imagine this you've got a ge- disgraced general, a former general Michael Flynn is the head of this you know convening that is traveling around the country and he's a general and there are people in there using this very warmongering kind of language saying that there is going to be, a war there's not only a spiritual war going on but we're actually up against real possessed leaders right so so in my view I think what they're doing and what, what worries me is they're sort of pulling people into this violent atmosphere they're ginning up these fears and with hopes of weaponizing these folks in a true civil war in America and that's something you know as a Christian that I think is just horrific horrific for the country and horrific for our faith.
0: So you are listening to the messaging, you're experiencing the atmosphere. Uh, Many of those people who were willful participants in the audience went back to their homes and some of them will be at our uh, holiday dinner coming up. What would you, what, what coaching could you give to us as we're listening to some of our loved ones, our family members, our coworkers, people in our community group at church, as we're listening to them kind of repeat some of that stuff that they're hearing from these conferences and talk tracks, what coaching would you give to us to, to maybe take it to a, a better
1: space? Oh, that's so beautiful. So I've wrestled with this a lot because this is some of my family members. This was my dad. And before he died, I, I wrestled with him a lot. We we both shared a deep Christian faith. We were the two people in our family who were really deeply committed and going deeper spiritually. And he got swept away from me by this kind of fear mongering that we see out there. And that, that started even in the early 2000s. It's been going on for some time even earlier than that, I'm sure, but that's when I saw it in him. And I, my heart goes out to people. So the first thing I say is really it's important to understand that some of this is an emotional response. Fear works on people. It works on the primitive part of our brain, the instinctual piece that sort of where the fight or flight kick in. It's not rational, as we talked about before in some ways. like So logic is not going to work. Trying to like reason with facts and figures is not going to work. What is important is to connect with their feelings, not to agree with them necessarily, not say, you know, oh, you're right about what you are thinking and saying, but to say, look, I, I hear you're really afraid or you're really upset or you feel like the economy is going in the wrong direction. You feel like things are stacked against you. Identify with the feelings. And then after that, uh, introduce some new information. Introduce empathetically the the way you're thinking about it. You know, I I hear how you're feeling about this. I'd like to share something with you that you know is a different perspective. What I see is X. You can you can introduce the the ideal thing is a story, something you've experienced, something somebody you know has experienced. Introduce a trusted you know, sort of messenger or source, and scripture can be that too. Here's how I think about it as a Christian, I know we're both Christians. Um, here's a text that I think about a lot when I think about this issue. And then, you know, continue the conversation in that, that vein. So identifying with the feelings, but then trying to introduce some new information, either through a story or through a shared trusted resource like scripture. And then also understand that what you're doing is planting seeds, you're trying to build trust with the person by being empathetic but also by by introducing some new ideas. And that for me has taken a lot of pressure off to realize like I am not going to fix this in one conversation and I'm not here to win a debate. I'm not here to use a rapier rape intellect, you know, and just kind of debate with somebody. I'm really here to be a sort of warm pastoral presence that introduces a new way of thinking for them that they could grasp on to when they're able and ready and to be able to continue the conversation in a respectful ongoing way.
0: Yeah, I love that you concluded with that idea of keeping the relationship going.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: this, is, this is something that's been enculturated into people over a long period of time. It's deep inside many of them. And so it's probably going to take a long time to move out of that space, uh, to move out of that spirit of fear. And so keeping the conversation going, always maintaining that while I don't agree with the things you're saying, uh, what I ultimately want is for us to maintain this relationship and for us to still be friends or in a loving family, whatever the relationship may be. That's beautiful. Uh, Jennifer, you have written uh, some great work on these things. Where can people find you and your work?
1: so my website is revjenbutler.com and on there you'll find all of my social media handles it's all the same revjenbutler.com i'm on twitter instagram and substack now which is this online newsletter thing and you can find me there
0: and uh what's your myspace handle
1: don't have one
0: Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) all right Well, we'll find you on the other outlets uh thank you so much for (laughs) being with us and for the work that you do
1: Thank you.